Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue tonight with our study of the words and actions of Jesus as described in the Gospel of Luke. In the previous satsang, I came to the point where Jesus was talking about the fact that one should not be so much attached to physical things, but more to the spiritual things, because causing damage in spiritual reality is much, much, much worse in effect than causing damage in physical reality, which is superficial and temporary. And he spoke about himself. He mentions the Holy Spirit, which is one of the fundamental theological aspects of Christianity. And he closes by predicting that many people, because of his teaching, will be persecuted. And he simply says, don't worry how you defend yourself, because the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time. In this way, Jesus concludes in a formidable way, because he basically describes an interaction of the human being with God, which is permanent, which is alive. There are many people in the modern world who seem to believe that God is far away, and does not interact with the human beings, or as I probably, if I remember correctly, as Nietzsche said it, the German madman and philosopher, when he said God is dead. Of course, he meant uh, it in another way as well, but he also meant on the fact that humanity does not seem to experience any living feedback from God. Earthquakes come, viruses come, a lot of other things come and people pray and then they die anyway. Have you ever known one person who prayed not to die and then for another hundred years they did not die? Of course, that's the law of nature. Kali has to give you death. It's the law of nature that the human being lives for a certain span of years and when that span is coming, you can be a great saint destined for Shambhala, or you can be a total ignorant monkey, you still die. You cannot fake that, you cannot twist that, you cannot bend that. And if it happens that somebody, I don't know, lives a thousand years a la Babaji or something like this, then there will be absolutely no proof, there will be no way of seeing it, if the divine consciousness will make that miracle possible, it will make it in such a way that the rest of the world will remain ignorant about it. So, uh, what Jesus says is that the Holy Spirit is alive, is here, is acting in emergencies, in persecution, in every circumstance of life. You cannot say that today something happened and the Holy Spirit was not paying attention and that's why something bad happened. It happens all the time. And if it doesn't happen and you say, but look, I definitely did pray or ask for this and nothing happened, it means the request was wrong. 
It means the request was egocentric. It means the request was ignorant or foolish. It was going against the Dharma of God. It was going against the will of God. It means that that request was recorded by the Divine Consciousness and then discarded by the Divine Consciousness. It doesn't mean that the request didn't reach to that place because God is not picking up the red phone or because the Holy Spirit is busy. It's always there, but sometimes we are not worthy of these favors. Everybody, when they feel they are going to die, many people say, I don't want to die. But what have you done to deserve such a favor? If Milarepa says, I want to go into my diamond body and live forever, maybe Milarepa has earned this favor. He has gone beyond the action of Kali, beyond the action of Yama, the Lord of Death. How many people like Milarepa have lived on the face of this earth in the last 1,000 years? That's the question. So it's not the absence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there permanently, but human beings err through the mistake that they think their ego is the most important thing on the face of this earth, and then they, of course, everybody is being taught a lesson. You can have prayers which are selfless. Like, for example, the famous Italian mystic Padre Pio, in 1917 or 18, I forgot exactly, towards the end of the First World War, he prayed that God should stop the war and give him the suffering for this war. In the First World War, tens of millions of people have died. Chemical weapons were still being used. The suffering was huge. Some people say that there may have been more suffering in the First World War than there was in the Second World War, even. More death and more pain. And that's why the point of this is Padre Pio made a selfless prayer. Was the war 10 days shorter because of Padre Pio? Was the war 100 days shorter because of Padre Pio? Then Padre Pio was sick for the rest of his life and had stigmata on his body and a lot of other trouble. Maybe. We will never know. Only when you go to Shambhala, you will find there a record where people will show you, the Grand Masters of Shambhala will show you, look what this madman hero called Pio, Padre Pio, look, look what he did in 1918. In Shambhala, we have all been amazed of the balls of this man that he had the courage to ask for all the pain of the world to come to him so that just the war could stop and death and so on. Of course, death and dying, if you count how many people died after the day when Padre Pio did this, you'll still find that maybe a million people still died in the three months until the war has stopped. No? But those people had the karma to die. It was the dance of Kali. 
Even Padre Pio could not stop that if you would go selfishly and say, ah, because I'm a spiritual hero, let me show some muscle, uh, let it all stop and it's because of me. Then it would be like uh, some sort of Leo infatuation. Leo, the astrological sign. Me, 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 Napoleon, Mussolini, the biggest person in the world. I want the world to stop and let everybody know that it was because of my great sacrifice. It doesn't work like that. So, even Padre Pio, if he really had this spirit of sacrifice in him, he could not just impress his ego on matters which are of planetary importance. Jesus is the kind of person, the kind of spirit that can make a difference at the planetary level. If Pio, Padre Pio, made the difference of 10 days in the length of the First World War, which would be huge, huge, amazing that the war was shorter 10 days just because of one man, that we don't know for sure. Only the Akashic records of God, only the angels, the great angels, the great classes of angels in heaven, and only Shambhala will have the degree of clairvoyance to see that, to have that, recorded. And thus, Jesus is telling to people, focus on the big things, the Holy Spirit is there, and it's just the problem that people are ignorant and they don't see it. And he speaks about him. He says, look at me, I'm here doing all this, and people don't recognize me. And he says, it's very fine, if you are ashamed with me, I can also be ashamed with you. Let's see who will be more sorry in the end. No? If, I, if you are sorry with me, what have Jesus got to lose? If Jesus is ashamed with you, then what have you got to lose? There's a huge difference there. So, telling this, he says, the Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say. He emphasizes once more that God is here that God is alive, that God is acting minute by minute. And when people say, what, why didn't he solve the innocent people during the tsunami? It's because there were no innocent people. They are innocent only for journalists. But from the standpoint of the divine consciousness in heaven, every person who died in a tsunami or in a tornado or in... Uh, epidemic, why not? They had the karma to die right there and then. Nothing happens outside of the laws of karma. I repeat what I've said last week. Only miracles, only the miracles of God, which are one in a century, or again, I'm exaggerating, they happen more often, but only the miracles of God are the only thing which is supernatural. Otherwise, in nature, in the universe, in samsara, in manifestation, karma is the Lord. And everything happens according to karma. God is stepping in the manifestation only to overrule the karma, to go over the karma. And that happens very, very seldom. First of all, because karma is brilliant. Don't forget that karma has been created 
by the consciousness of God. And it's brilliant. Karma is the greatest teacher that we have in this universe. Karma is a brilliant mechanism by which the human being and the whole universe learns a lot. So there is no reason for God that he created the karma and now he says, oh, I'm sorry for Walter. Walter should not have to undergo the karma. Then God is shooting himself in the foot. With one hand he creates the karma and with the other hand he says, I'm sorry I created the karma. No, he's not sorry at all. Karma, even when it seems to be very tough and very drastic, nevertheless, karma is absolutely necessary. And sometimes, sometimes, in a case in a million, when somebody's prayer and spiritual merit is outstanding, then God could, might violate the karma. But even then, the forces which will do that, they will do it in such a way that all the other 99.99999% of the people who are around, they will not notice it. They will not notice it. I was saying in a Q&A not long time ago, there was an airplane from the Emirates or Gulf Air which crashed in the Indian Ocean. 200 people died. One girl which was nine years old, she was found the only person alive without a scratch. How many people have read this news and they have realized that there a miracle has happened, that only a miracle can explain such a discrepancy? No. The forces of God, the angels, the devas, they have created that miracle because they can. When they are given the green light, they can. Their power is almost unlimited. They can do much, much, much bigger things than that. So they did. But they did it in such a minimalistic way, like a magician who does a sleight of hand. Now you see it, now you don't. Where is that girl? Did somebody take an interview last year? Ten years later and say, hey girl, what happened? Can you remember what you remember? How comes, how, what do you think that why were you the only person out of an airplane and all that? Did somebody follow? Did somebody dig? Did somebody try to find out on which seat he was? she was seated? If it was one of the more protected seats in an airplane or on the contrary or what? There has been, to my knowledge, no inquiry. No details. All the journalists that are digging into the Panama City papers and everything, every shit in this world, the journalists must poke their nose into it and dig into it. They didn't dig into that. So, even though there was there some strange violation of the laws of karma, nevertheless, it's like people are blind and hypnotized and the wall of silence us acted and people ignore that. And they focus on other things which are totally meaningless. So, Jesus is teaching us that you should trust because the operative part of God, which is called the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, is here. It's alive. It's acting. But it prefers to let the law of karma do the job because the law of karma does a splendid job. 
already. And the Holy Spirit and so on has to interfere only once in a million, once in ten million, when there is a very, very special case. And Jesus then continues. We are still in the chapter number 12. He says, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That's exactly what they would try to do with Jesus, with Buddha, with, you know. Like there, his problem, he came to listen to Jesus. And his problem was that he had an inheritance with his brother and his brother took the lion's share and was not giving him enough. The fucking idiot was concerned about the money. And he's coming to Jesus like, hey, if you have so much authority, solve my family problem. And then I will go home and beat my wife and get myself drunk, you know? But Jesus, you know, God has to be my slave. Do some work for me because, you know, it could very well be that this man had a bad karma and it was meant that his brother should rip him off. This, this man had to lose money because he was greedy and in a previous life he may have done some bastardly things about money and all that. And now he had to take a lesson. And he has this nasty Manipura. I was about to say nasty Jewish Manipura, but I don't want to turn it into a, a racistic or some sort of things. He had a nasty Manipura. Either he was Japanese or Mongolian or Jewish or something. He had a nasty Manipura. And, you know, he's coming to Jesus, who is all the time boiling about the Holy Spirit and this and that. And this guy says, by the way, sorry to interrupt. Could you solve my inheritance problem with me? What the fuck? Isn't there Roman authorities? Aren't there Jewish authorities? Is there a procurator? Is there a local king? Aren't there courts of law? Like, why ask Jesus about such a dumb thing and that when you know that this guy is notoriously detached from material problems? And you can say, yeah, but it's not just a material problem. It's a matter of justice. Not really. Not really. You know how King Solomon solved the justice. Two women claimed that they were both the mother of a child. And King Solomon said, bring my bodyguard. We'll split this child in two and give half to one woman and half to the other. No? And then the one who was the real mother caved in. She couldn't see her baby cut in two. While the other one, who was a bitch, she couldn't care. No? And this Solomon found out this. So it was not about justice. It's about a lot of other things there. So this man had a problem with the money. His problem was the money. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? See how interesting it is. Because Jesus says, I'm God. And at the same time, he says, who appointed me as a judge or an arbiter about? Isn't God the ultimate judge? He is, but he is not interested in this shit. The fact that somebody cheated on a heritage, on an inheritance or something, and it's like, why would you bother God with that? Because there is a law of karma which will fix that anyhow, sooner or later. So why should God bother himself with something which is regulated anyway by the laws of nature? 
So Jesus is interested in consciousness. He is interested in people's awakening, faith, aspiration, longing for God. That's what he came to do. He came to motivate people for that. And people are asking him to be a judge about this or that. You remember that they tried to do this often with him. They brought to him a woman who had been an adulterous woman. And they said, according to the laws of Moses, we have to stone her to death. What would you say? And then it was a much bigger issue than this because that woman was about to get stoned to death. So it was a death and life like this. Two brothers can't find out about who took too much money and who took too little. It's almost hilarious for God, you know, like Jesus can say, come on, you know, talk to me and see if I care about your shit. No, like it's not really important. But that woman was about to be killed right there. And then Jesus activated everybody's sahasrara. And he said, let those of you who have no sin cast the first stone. And then everybody could see themselves naked, you know. Everybody could see themselves like, why do I want to kill this woman? Of course, she's guilty according to the law. But why do I want to be the one to enforce the law when I have so many problems myself? And eventually everybody dropped the stones and left. Like Jesus can administer justice. God can administer justice. God can administer much more than justice. Justice is a concept on Manipura and Ajna Chakra. But God can administer the awakening of Sahasrara, which is directly the access to the pure consciousness, to the awakening. So of course God can do that. But God, Jesus is not going to bother to make, to, to start sorting out people who say, go to Jesus, he's a very fair judge. He solved my friend's problem with his brother and with the inheritance. Then Jesus would become just a local judge, a sort of administrator of the law. Jesus doesn't fall into that trap. He says, I didn't come here for that. You want to limit my mission to the who has appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you two. Like, in, in a spiritual way, it's an insult. It's a debasement, though. Of course, he doesn't get insulted because he is Jesus. But he simply puts it very simple. Like, he says, who put me an arbiter or this? No, It's like, don't try to make God arbiter in such issues. Then he said to them, watch it. Now he comes with the consciousness, like you are such idiots, you are asking me about your heritage, about your inheritance, and meanwhile you are missing the big one, and the big one is here. Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's really, really one of the two main poisons of life. When I look like what I have seen in the world in the last 30 years, just to take a norm, you know, because until 30 years I was confined in my own country, and you can say I had a very unilateral experience of just one society, one national soul, one country. But at least since 30 years, I'm more or less a citizen of the world. I have been living abroad 
with people from all countries. And in what I have seen, indeed, this greed, this abundance, this, this craze about possessions, 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 possessions. I always remember Ramakrishna, the great guru, who all the time defined the, reduced the human madness to two factors. He called them gold and the woman. By the woman he meant sex, lust, the sexual desire, and by gold he meant greed, avarice, the need for possessions. These two, these two, how many friendships have been broken? How many men and women have I seen in my life who declared themselves friends with each other? And when it came to money, and when it came to sex and sexual partners, they broke it ugly. Ugly. That's why it's very... Here, Jesus is catching one of them. He sometimes speaks about people's sexual obsession, but it seems that in this Manipura Chakra environment of Israel, with the desert culture, you see how the Bedouins were living, the Arabic cultures of later, um, the Essenes, the alleged sect out of which John the Baptist may have been part of, anyhow, a local, a, a cult, a very puritanic Jewish cult of those days, which definitely influenced the mysticism of Israel in those days, these were transforming the sexual part into something more dry. It seems that there was a lot of sexual suppression. And that part of the world, there was, of course, sexual madness and lust and desires. Like humanity, we are on a planet made of water. So it's almost impossible that people will not react to Svalistana madness. But it seems that at least if you think about the Jewish culture itself, which one of them is more crazy, the gold or the woman? Everybody knows that when you speak about the Jewish soul, it's money, 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 that that's one of the things. No? So, it's... Uh, Jesus more often, he speaks sometimes about the sexual madness, but more often than that, he speaks about the greed, madness, the madness of possessions, that people are attached to the physical world. And he includes the body as a package and the needs of the body as well. So he tells to these people, you are coming to me to ask me to divide a fortune between you two. That's what you make out of me. I am Jesus and I'm going to die for humanity on a cross, and you are asking me to divide your wealth between you? He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Everybody tells it. When you die, you cannot take one penny with you. The only thing which you have when you die is your soul. 
But look at the rich people in the world, how they get buried in gold, with jewels, in mausoleums, in luxury, in golden coffins, in crystal coffins. In this, it's like the madness is so big, the attachment is so big, that even when these people die, they fake it a little bit. At least a little bit they would try to fake it or something, because otherwise it was not worth it. You know, what was the worth of it that you spit your lungs and shed your blood for a miserable ton of gold or whatever it is? And then in the end, when you die, Kali takes everything from you. Death takes everything away from you. So like, what's the merit? What then, then, you know, there are people who can see that and they go in the opposite extreme. Then they say, I don't want to have anything. And what about karma yoga? When you do things like Swami Shivananda made an ashram, wrote 100 or 200 books and brochures. He did this and then he died as a yogi anyway. They put him in a coffin and that was it. They no? Like he was not dressed in gold or anything. He was not having any illusion about taking some wealth with him. But he produced a lot of wealth in his life and he did not produce it for himself. He produced it with detachment and in his case it was a brilliant amount of karma yoga. So he calls their attention. Now Jesus comes with Sahasrara and says, forget about the justice that one brother has cheated the other justice. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Ah, there is a law of karma. And either this brother deserves it and then he got screwed and when he will finish getting screwed, then he is even, he just paid his karma or the other brother overdoes it, like this guy deserved to get just 15% of the money, and this brother screwed him and gave him only 5% of the money. And then down to 15, it was his karma, and the last 10% was an abuse done by this brother. And then this brother creates for himself a negative karma, where he abused this one, and this one is taxed more than his karma were requiring for the time being. Again, there will be another karma from other previous lives which will fill up that gap, or some miracle will happen. This guy who was screwed, six months later, he will win the lottery, or another rich relative of his wife will die and leave them a lot of money and then he will say I don't care my brother screwed me because I got money from another source and I'm still happy and I'm uh, abundant affluent no? therefore Jesus doesn't want to go there and he says the problem guys is be careful he says watch out be be aware of the greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he, again, today when I read about books of wealth management and law of attraction, especially the English language people, it's a lot of these books written by English language people, 
the English language people are complete hypocrites when it comes to this. The English language people, the British culture, the Anglo-Saxon culture, loves money and is very greedy about money. And when they write such books, they say, yeah, but to be wealthy means to be wealthy in friends, in uh, pleasures of the spirit. And this, they give you a lot of bullshit talk because they feel guilty about insisting too much on material wealth. And then as soon as they have done their bullshit and they covered themselves because they said the right things, then they get back to the financial obsessions. Back to it. So uh, the, the problem is a philosophical problem. The life does not consist in the abundance of the possessions. Again, I could give you amazing examples of this, of what has happened in this world, where you can see that some people can live it out entirely. And then he told them this parable. Like he tried to make them understand by telling them a wild story, a very provocative story. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to myself, now you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Usually, we use this syntax. Eat, eating, drinking, and being merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. Which means is a syntax taken from the Bible about this thing, that you should be like careless. You should be careless. There are people who feel that they've got enough money, they've got enough of this, they've got enough of that, and then they start taking it easy. And you will be surprised, but Jesus doesn't like this take it easy. Jesus doesn't want anybody to live their life in this take it easy. The Italians have a splendid expression for it which is called to live in the dolce far niente. Dolce far niente means the sweet doing nothing. Sweet doing nothing. Dolce far niente. Then how, what do you do all day long? Dolce far niente. I sweetly do nothing. This is considered by Jesus death of the soul. Like, he will explain it. So this rich man... He has everything and he is covered for years and years. The Tibetans, for example, they had a rule for Buddhist monks that you should not have goods which exceed your need of survival. I forgot if it was six months or one year. Like you should never, if you have more than what you need to survive for one year from today, it means you go in dolce far niente. You already are piling up because you want to stick the finger in your ass and do nothing all day long. You should have a pressure on you that there is not enough in your life and that you have to do something. And then you will see if you will do material things or spiritual things. 
So he says, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. This is exactly what you are being taught today. Take a cruise ship and sail the seas of the world for six months with five-star restaurants and bars and swimming pools. Dolce far niente. This is what you deserve, especially retirees. Ah, you've reached your pension. You've reached your retirement. It's the golden years. Golden years means stick the finger in your ass and far niente. Dolce far niente. Do nothing. That is death. That is death of the soul. And look what Jesus argues in this parable. He said, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Most people die by surprise. Although they know it's coming, they don't expect it to be coming. It's incredible. The art of dying says that people should prepare for their death. And almost nobody prepares for their death. It's incredible. When death is certain, you can say, I prepared for my death, and it didn't come in 2020. It will come in 2028. Hey, it will still come. It will still come. So be prepared in 2020 as well as in 2021, as well as in 2022, because at some point it will come. I always tell to people, I had a friend who had been a yogini for many years. She had cancer two times and she healed it. And then she went to Australia and there she had cancer the third time. She was on very bad diet and, you know, she had gone a bit old and greedy and a lot of other factors were in her life. And instead of doing Oshava diet, instead of doing radical black fast and other things which have saved her the other two times... She started taking C vitamin for $1,000 per month. Now she was in Australia. She was applying luxury methods because she was living in a rich country of high Anglo-Saxon standards. And of course she died. And one of her students came to me afterwards and she told me about her last days. And she told me she was shocked. She visited this girl she died at 35, 37, very young. No, and, and she, this other girl visited her, and this other girl was her Australian liaison. She was having visa in Australia. I don't know, by a company, work permit, student visa, something. So she periodically had to renew her papers for the visa. And this girl visited her Tuesday, and that girl died Wednesday or Thursday. She died, not, not, not three days have passed, one or two days passed since this visit. This was the last time when this girl saw her. And when she saw her, that girl was having a belly swollen like this because the ophthalmitis liquid in the belly because her cancer had gone to her liver and everything. Like when you have, and she was a medical doctor, this girl, yeah? The, the dying one. So she knew, yeah, when you have a belly like this, only a miracle can save you. You know, it's, you are in the terminal phase of a cancer. You know? 
and she's telling to this Australian girl who was her liaison, she says, please make sure that you prepare my papers for the visa because the time is coming up. What visa? You're talking about the visa to St. Peter, the visa to the pearly gates. What visa? This woman was a yogini and she was lying on her bed to die one, two days before her death and she was asking somebody to prepare. If she would have been lucid, she would have said, cut all preparations about my papers. Please pray for my soul. Stay here with me and meditate. Help me. Call one of my friends who is a big yogi. Write them right now. Phone them and tell them to take an airplane right now in three hours and come here and help me because I'm dying. This is what I say. So God, this is exactly the voice of God, the voice of consciousness. God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? How big the blindness, the ignorance, the attachment can be. One of the two people who spread, who split India, the British India, when India was split into Pakistan and India, was the guy, the Muslim politician called Jinnah, who is the leader of the Muslim part of it. And this guy was a Scorpio, chain-smoking, really rabid type of temperament, like really, like really angry, and so on. And he, everybody, the British told them both, if you split India and Muslim India and Hindu India, endless trouble will ensue from this. This guy insisted because he wanted to be prime minister and he couldn't be prime minister in a Hindu India. So he twisted the arm of the Indian guy, I forgot his name, Nehru. It was Jinnah in Pakistan and Nehru in India. And they twisted his arm. And Nehru was a very egoistic, materialistic politician. And he said, okay, sure. Yeah, I'm still going the lion's share here, so it's okay. You know? And they did it. And what nobody did was that this Jinnah was having terminal cancer. So if the British would have known it, they would have postponed the independence of India for six months. And then this guy would have died. And the other Pakistani Muslim politicians, they could have been dealt with. And then the history of India would have been different. But it's just because people would not stop. People would not stop even when death is coming in an ignorant way. That's why it's very difficult to find the death. There is a Hindu astrologer, a Vedic astrologer from America, who wrote a very rare book called The Astrology of Death. And then, when he published that book, he died of a pancreas cancer in six months. And every time when we ask, I ask a good Canadian Hindu astrologer, one of the leaders in North America in terms of Hindu astrology, I said, what is your thing about time of death, if you are making such accurate predictions? And he said, in Kali Yuga, we are forbidden to tell 
the time of death. It can be calculated, but our gurus teach us not to look into it and not to try to calculate it in any way because it's forbidden in Kali Yuga. Of course, the main forbiddance is that because people know when they are going to die, they will do stupid things before they die. They will risk their lives. They will do some extreme things due either to the fear of death or to not caring about consequences in one way or another. So in Kali Yuga, people are not prepared to greet death in a wise way, in a sage way, in a harmonious way. And here, Jesus is talking about this. Nobody is looking into death. God, the God is not talking physically, he doesn't need to. But God, who is the universal consciousness, speaks to this man, you fool. This very night your life will be demand, like how you don't even see it coming. You didn't even ask yourself, when could it happen? Now you say, I've got great crops and I'm rich. How rich can you be from one crop? Okay, you've got food and money for five years. That's not really rich. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and the others, they have money not for five years. They have money for five billion years, you know. They have money for a thousand lifetimes from now on, if they really would, would be able to use that money. And that's why, you know, it's like, it's still, it's not much. It's a minor wealth. It's just a well-being. It's a, it's a minor thing. And still the guy goes crazy. God tells him, what if you die tonight? What if I'm asking you to come back home tonight? Who will get all that? No? Who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus tells him, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Jesus says it's not about being storing things. Up to a certain point, they can be useful. They can be useful. If you would have enough money to live in this island for the next 10 years without having any job, you would go and say, Swamiji, we can do yoga from morning till evening. I've got money for food and house and the necessities of life for the next 10 years. In 10 years, I will see what will happen. Either my Sahasrara will become as big as that, or we'll see what happens. No, maybe the Third World War will come and wipe out the whole planet, and then I won't care anyway. Money will have no value anyway after that. But I can... You know, so, of course, it's okay to have a certain freedom in terms of not being tensed about the material needs. But even then... You have to be detached from it. You cannot condition your life. Jesus says, how can you not see that you are arguing with your brother for some heritage, like this man who got a rich crop? And then God says, this very night your life will be demanded back from you. Like you're going, the Lord of death will come and ask you, surrender, come, follow and you will have to. Nobody can oppose that. No? How? What will you do? What is the use of all this effort? 
Aren't you going to go like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. How stupid have I been that I put all my attention there. He says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Here Jesus opens a dangerous door, but which he hopes to use it to an advantage. He says, instead of being rich towards money, you can be rich towards God. Like you can say that a woman like Mother Teresa, who took thousands and maybe more, tens, hundreds of thousands of hungry children, dying children, dying people on the street, and who gave them some alleviation, she couldn't save their lives. For children, yes, but for dying people, nobody says that she did miracles and saved their lives. She just gave them food. She washed them. She cleaned their wounds. Maybe their pain diminished to 50% of what it was the day before. So, a woman like Mother Teresa, who did that, who did so much charity, so much selfless service, Jesus says, maybe she is rich towards God. She didn't have money in her pocket, but she was rich towards God. Maybe there was somebody like Milarepa or like Lama Merit Intellect or somebody, they didn't do anything. They didn't have money. But every time when the time was coming and the sun was coming up, they were sitting down and they started going like, Om Mani Peme Hum, Om Mani Peme Hum, Om. And they went like this for 12 hours. No. Maybe they were rich towards God. Maybe they were rich in God. So, Jesus says, don't insist on the materialistic things and ignore all the others. At some point you can say, but Swami Shivananda was rich towards God and he also made a big ashram and uh, you know they had land. And... Yes, but first of all, the ashram was not his personally. It belonged to a trust. He made a trust for it. And when Swami Shivananda died, the ashram was left for his disciples. And the ashram still exists today. And it teaches Vedanta, Yoga, whatever. It teaches. So in the end we see that was not the egoism of Swami Shivananda. It was not made out of ego. It was made as a pure service. So Swami Shivananda managed to have both. To have some material abundance. And at the same time to be rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so now he's talking to the disciples, especially always to the disciples, he gives something which is a bit more concentrated. So he's not talking to the man who said, judge between me and my brother. To that he scolded him and said, how crazy are you? What if God is telling you tonight, come to me, you fool, I want your life back tonight then what are you going to say about this thing with your brother? How important will it be? It was Laleshvari or Utpaladeva who says in Kashmiri Shaivas, oh, you feel life is passing quickly and man's foolish dreams go and so on. And he says, venerate Shiva. When the time of death is coming, the rules of grammar 
will be of no importance. Like a teacher can be very punctilious, huh? you made grammatical mistakes, snap you over the fingers, correct you, you know? When you die, the rules of finger, the rules of grammar are of no importance. People focus on so many little things, but they don't focus on the most important thing. I want to be prepared for death. That's the real important thing. No, that's where you go. That's for sure. And then Jesus said to his disciples, he turned to the disciples, and he said, therefore, I tell you, you see what this fool is saying. See how foolish people are. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Jesus is teaching a detachment. This detachment doesn't mean that you should not have. But he says, do not worry. It's a big difference here. Because you remember, when we speak about Aparigraha, you remember that the Tantric tradition, just like Krishna, who is one of the forerunners of this mentality in the Bhagavad Gita, says the important thing is the detachment, the inner attitude. If you have, you have. Have with detachment. And if you don't have, you don't have. And you don't have with detachment as well. And Jesus is telling, you know, Milarepa went in a cave. What food did he have? He stayed there for 30 years. When you are 4,500, 5,000 meters up in a mountain, I don't know if you have ever been in the Himalayas or in Tibet, you know. That relief is unforgiving. It's terrible. You go there, there is nothing. I don't know where this guy found water to drink. Where do you find a little rivulet at 5,000 meters up in a cave? Okay, probably there was a spring around there. In 1995, I visited a canyon between Jerusalem and Jericho. Today it's in those very dangerous territories east of Jerusalem. And uh, there is there a Christian monastery called uh, St. George, Joseva. And uh, from there, there is a canyon which goes east. It's like that monastery is 30 kilometers east of Jerusalem. And from there, you walk another 10 kilometers to Jericho, a city which is part of the Palestinian territories, but of course controlled in a certain way by the Israeli government. And that, that area is very dangerous because that's where you know, there is uprising and there is, uh, you can be shot, you can be... At that time I was young and I just wanted to go and see that place because I knew that in George Joseva they had the body of a saint which had been found unrotten, one of these incorruptible bodies and this saint died in 1962. St. John Jacob is his name, John Jacob. And uh, they found him in 1964. Like for two years, nobody he knew he was, he was dead because he was living somewhere far in the desert. He was living in a... You know, somebody who visited him after two years found him dead. He had dug his own grave 
So he was lying in his own grave. He had a brick or a stone as a pillow under his head. He was correctly lain for death, and he was dressed in his priest clothes. So he had dressed up, lied down, and passed away. And, and his body in the desert heat of Israel, his body did not decompose. He did not get eaten by the birds. He did not get eaten by the worms. His body lied down in the desert air. It was a canyon, so maybe there was not direct sunshine too much. But he lied down there for two years, and they found him. And I saw his body. They took him, and they took him in a glass coffin in the monastery. And there, I asked the monks, you know, what to do, what to see. And they said, if you have balls, walk through the canyon 10 kilometers. It will take you three hours. Walk to Jericho. And from Jericho, you'll find a taxi who will take you back to Jerusalem and so on. And I didn't think about the danger. The monks gave us two bottles of frozen water. It was solid ice in plastic bottles big bottles, so that the, uh, the water will melt in the heat of the desert, and you would have cold water constantly to drink. So I walked through the desert, and there, there were amazing places. There was a place, for example, where the grandparents of Jesus had lived. The grandparents of Jesus gave birth to Virgin Mary. They were called Anna and Joachim, Joachim. And Joachim and Anna, they gave birth to Virgin Mary at a very old age. It was like a miracle to give birth to that girl, who later became Virgin Mary. And after they raised that girl, they separated, and they lived two kilometers from each other in, some, in that canyon, like hermits. They never saw each other again, maybe once a year, I don't know exactly the details of it. No, but they separated, and today their huts exist. And when you walk through that canyon, they told us in the monastery that in the heyday of this monastery, there were up to 3,000 monks living in pigeon holes in those cliffs on the sides of the canyon. You know? And I said, like, what about the food? You know, like, how do you give food to all those people? About the water, like forget about the food. What about the water? I walked through that canyon, and after I walked for a couple of kilometers, and I started seeing the places, the caves. There were caves, and some of them were walled at the entrance. The guy who lived in that cave built a wall at the entrance, not completely, but he was like in a hut. The closest source of water was 100 meter down on a vertical wall. Like you, it was utterly inconceivable that somebody would go down daily for water. It was a breakneck adventure. The more I walked through that canyon, the more I was like, when these people went into one of those holes, you didn't know if you were going to have food, and worse, you didn't know what they were going, if you were going to have water. 
you were like Jesus says. He says, consider the birds of the skies, you know, and all that, that parable, he comes again with it. It's incredible. I was with a Danish student of mine from that day, and I was so shocked that I was thinking with loud voice, I said, freaks my mind out to think of what did the people who chose, like today, I'm going in that hole and that's it, never coming back. Like, what has to be in your heart? Like, how suicidal, crazy, fanatic, mad, and how much love for God and how much trust for God you must have to go there when I, as an engineer, when I look at it today, I say, my God, if you go there, it's 90% chance you won't even survive for one month or two. You know, it's like it's, it's a, it's a one-way ticket. How are you going there? What are you going to do there? And this Danish student of mine who was a very serious man, very deep, he said, you know, I don't even dare to point my thought, like to try to find out telepathically, you know, to try to think, what did those people think? He said, I'm afraid even to think about that. Because, like, you know, I'm afraid I might receive the answer also, you know. I'm afraid I might actually feel what they are feeling, you know. And then I'm crazy also. That's like, I'm gone. Completely. So... Jesus gives this mentality. He all the time is trying to say, why so extreme? Uh, because ultimately we should speak about detachment and find the middle position like we do in a tantric school. But Jesus is trying to compensate because people are so much on the side of this golden sex that you have to press a lot in the opposite direction so that at least you create some balance and harmony in this. Because humanity is so skewed about this, so obsessed with this. And he says, life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. If I would be a nagging asshole, I would say, come on, the arguments of Jesus are bullshit. How many men and women have died of starvation? I have looked on this worldometer because when you get all these numbers from coronavirus and all this, there is an organization called Worldometer where they give how many people died from the beginning of this year. And the number is rolling like this. It's like three people per second dying right now while I'm speaking. It's like every, everything is there. How many people have died from the 1st of January until today from car accidents? from smoking-related illness, from alcohol-related illness, from this, from that. All the statistics are there second by second. 
and then they are updated from the National Statistic Institute once a month or whenever the updates are coming. And there you have the updates of Corona. Until now, there is 40-something, 47,000 died from Corona, and it's like 90,000 died from seasonal flu. Until now, this year, the seasonal flu has killed two times more people than Corona. So it's a very good site to go. It's called Worldometer. And in the Worldometer, one of the counters, one of the pages, one of the things is how many people have died today, today, every day, day by day, how many people have died today of hunger? Remember, it's 2020. And people even in Africa, they have smartphones. You know what the number was when I looked? It was evening. But the day was not over. The number was at 27,000 in that day. If I go and look now, it will be another 27 or 28,000. Today, today, we cry that 40,000 people, 45,000 people died of Corona, but 30,000 people die every day of hunger. And there is no journalistic hysteria about that. While dying of hunger could be stopped. A virus is very difficult to stop and you ruin the whole world while you are trying to stop it. As you can see, that's happening. Now they discovered that the economic ruin will follow. To save tens of thousands of people every day Every day, there are 100 days since the beginning of the year. Multiply 30,000 with 100, for God's sake. We're talking about 3 million people. Not 45,000, 3 million died of hunger. And nobody makes efforts for those. All it would take is that everybody should donate $1 per month and put them in whatever organization which is honest about really giving food to the hungry people because there are many cheating institutions as well. But an honest one, a real, a Mother Teresa kind of thing, which does the honest work of really giving food and all that. And all it would take is a bit of money from every person, not to stay locked in your house for two months or some other extreme things like that. So, everybody would say, what do you mean that look at the ravens? that they don't sow and they don't reap, and they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. Fuck, it's not true. There are many people that God is not feeding. And the proof is that 30,000 of them died today. Today, God forgot to feed 30,000 of them. And tomorrow, He will forget another 30,000. That, of course, if you would have asked Jesus, Jesus would have said, well, if you really want to go there, I'll show you the bigger picture. Of course, he would have been able to answer. Here, he's talking to some people in a limited context. He doesn't want to make world economics 
These were just some semi-illiterate Jews near the Sea of Galilee, living from agriculture and fishing. And Jesus was giving them some religious guidance. And you can say, so Jesus was uh, telling them white lies. Or, in a certain way, yes. Because there was no way for Jesus says, friends, let's zoom back the camera and I'll give you the big picture of what's happening on this planet. No. Jesus was a direct teacher talking to people here and now. Peter, he didn't need to know the big picture of probably people of dying of hunger in Sahara, in the sub-Saharan, because that's the most dying place on the world, all these sub-Saharan countries, Ethiopia, Sudan, Chad, Mali, all those African countries which are south of Sahara, they are the ones which bring the biggest number of these deaths. And Jesus was not going to say, now I'll use my Ajna Chakra and give you a lesson directly from Shambhala about the world economics and the situation of hunger. And then I will explain to you also what God thinks about this. No, he was just trying to cultivate faith in people and he was therefore not telling them like in the American justice. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Jesus is not telling them the whole truth because the whole truth would be uh, well, by the way, yeah, my statement is not entirely correct because in Sahara there are 10,000 people who died of hunger and so on. That, that was not his point. Jesus was focusing that in this society, these two guys are arguing about their heritage from their father and everybody is obsessed with money and land and goods and death can strike you tonight and you are unprepared for it. And yet everybody wants me to be their judge about financial and material issues. And he's telling them, people, chill out. Life is not only about money and food and clothes and this. Relax. You're crazy. Remember that even Francis of Assisi, when you saw the movies about his life, at least one of those, there are three, four movies that we have in the library of Agama. When you look at those, that's what Francis of Assisi was fighting most with. His father was a greedy man piling up money upon money. And his own father could not understand how his father, how his son wanted to be poor. He wanted to have nothing. He didn't want to be burdened by these material properties, by these material possessions. And therefore, truly, if I am to speak to you as a 21st century engineer, I will tell you that this rabbit hole is much deep, deeper. Because when you say, consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet gods feed them, are, and how much more valuable you are than birds then how does that fit with the statement that 30,000 people have died of hunger today? Okay, maybe you are going to say the people who report to this uh, world uh, 
World Health Organization, World Statistics, whatever, World Meter, they are hysterical activists and they exaggerate and they push it and it's 10 times over exaggerated. You know what? Okay, 3,000 people have died today. 10 times less. It's completely unacceptable. Remember that 3,000 people died in the Twin Tower disaster, in the terrorist attack or whatever it was, in the Twin Towers, and the scandal went sky high. And another 3,000 people or 30,000 have died of hunger in the same day, and nobody peeped, nobody tweeted about it. Nobody as much as peeped about it. So where is the fairness? Where is the justice? Where is, there is no justice. So if somebody was coming and telling me, you know, Jesus said, live like the birds of the sky because God feeds them and you are more valuable, I would say, you know, it's a different century. We have different media. We have different access to information. This one will have to be either explained or you cannot really use this example because somebody will shoot down this example very easily. So here, this example from Jesus has to be interpreted in a very narrow context. Those people didn't know about the dead people of hunger in Somalia and Ethiopia, and they would never hear about that in their whole life. And Jesus was using it as a powerful argument to stir up their confidence in God. Do you think that Jesus, if he was not a schizophrenic, and if he was not a deluded, megalomanic idiot, do you think that Jesus, with his third eye, being omniscient as God, do you think that Jesus could see that actually elsewhere on this planet people were dying of hunger? Yes. Do you think he had an explanation for it? Yes. What was he referring to? He was referring that when people do Ishvara Pranidana, when people surrender to God actively, and they say, God, I put myself in your hands, like the Jews in the desert, when they lived 40 years with manna from heaven under the guidance of Moses and of his followers, of his son, whoever followed him as a prophet. And other people, the guys from Vadikelt, St. George Joseva to Jericho, who went into a bird hole in a wall and they didn't know. What if I don't get to water? What if nobody brings me water, food? What if there is a war and suddenly the monks in the monastery cannot come? They get killed. Nobody will come here for a hundred days bringing water or food or anything. No? You cannot expect somebody with a chariot bringing food for 500 people. You know what food like? If everybody eats a kilo of food per day, food a kilo of rice, that's 500 kilos per day. And what if there are 3,000 people, not 500 people there? No? It's like, obviously, you are thinking clearly, I'm in the hand of God. I'm 100% in the hand of God. Kesera, sera. No, you live 
up to the providence. So Jesus wants to give them this spirit. He says, those who are conscious, because Jesus thinks the people from Ethiopia, sub-Sahara, who are dying of this hunger, if you would go and see, I've seen images, and they are terrible, not only movie images, but documentary images. There are people who tried to make some documentary about hunger on earth, no, and people dying of hunger every day. That means you, it means you can film it. No, nobody really dares. Like it's so provocative. You can't sleep in the night afterwards when you have seen it repeatedly. That those people. They were not people asking for the mercy of God. They were not awakened consciousness who said, God, I can see that in this country many people are dying of hunger. My life is in your hands. If you want me to die of hunger, I will die, but I consecrate it. I die for you. I, I surrender. I trust in you completely. Then the story changes completely. But the people who die like this, I'm sorry to say it because I don't want to be racistic and I'm not. I'm not referring to that particular geographical area, but in general, there are people who are unconscious. There are people who live their lives as monkeys, as baboons. They live like... Uh, 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 uh. Where is the spirit? Where is the consecration? Where is the fact that, hey, I'm a human being and there is a meaning to my life. And sure, I live in God, I live with God, and I've lived for 10 years, I'm 10 years old, and I'm very hungry, and I might die at the age of 10 or 11, no, soon. And I'm consecrating it to God, I'm saying, God, I surrender. I don't know, you know, let me emigrate to Holland. Let me go somewhere else where there is food. Help me in some way. I surrender to you. Make me get on a boat, people. You know, make me boat, people. Make me cross the Mediterranean. Maybe do something. But, you know, I surrender to you. Jesus makes a clear separation that it's one thing to live like a child of nature, to be a sort of semi-unconscious animal, and to live your life like uh, 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 digging for some roots or whatever. But there is no spirit. You remember like in the laws of Manu, it says the first man raised his eyes to heaven and said there is not only earth and roots and carrots and this. There is also a heaven which is the other half of our lives, which is where the big things are coming, the principles, the ideas, the archetypes, the spirit is coming from there. And that cannot be ignored. This is the awakened human being. That's why Jesus, when later he speaks about Baptist, he says what is born out of flesh is flesh. But what is born out of spirit like that image of Michelangelo, when God gives the spirit to Adam, but what is born out of spirit, that's spirit. 
The human being is not just an animal. The human being has the spirit. And if this spirit is not used, then you live like a baboon, then you need Jesus to come and touch you and simply say, wake up, be a human being. For a mysterious reason, there are human beings on the face of this earth which are not yet awakened to the level of Jesus. They are not yet awakened to the level of the Greek civilizations, you know, to be like Aristoteles or Socrates or Plato or something, you know, to be people who live in spirit, live in ideas, live in philosophies. There isn't. So Jesus could have said, by the way, if you want the whole truth in my statement, it's also true that there are spirits incarnated in human bodies. They look human. They are a little bit animalistic and unconscious. There has not been any major religious awakening for them. And those people are, no, you know, they don't consecrate. They don't surrender. Because if they would consecrate and surrender, they would be like the Jews in the desert. The angels would tempt to them. But because they don't do anything and they live in a totally animalistic lifestyle, then they are like animals. Are there animals dying of hunger and thirst? Sometimes, yes. When you look at National Geographic or when you look at videos like Planet Earth or something, you see that sometimes cataclysms and catastrophes happen. Sometimes a lot of penguins are dying during the march of the penguins. Sometimes a lot of zebras or gazelles or elephants or whatever are dying. In dolphins are dying, whales are dying. Sometimes because of human beings, sometimes not just because of natural cataclysms happening. And thus, here, this rabbit hole is very deep because somebody who is cynical could contradict Jesus, telling him, come on, he speaks nonsense, that look at the ravens, God feeds them, and you are more valuable than... It's not true, literally speaking. But Jesus is talking about people who are consciously awakened and who give themselves to God. Jesus is not referring to some animalistic lifestyles which can exist at various places on earth. Remember, there has existed famine, drought in Japan, in China, in Korea, in Romania, you name it. A thousand years ago when agriculture was an adventure, people were dying of hunger and starvation in many places. In communist Russia, Millions died because of Joseph Stalin. He took their produce to sell it, to do dumping prices, to destroy the American capitalism in the 1920s and 30s. Like, there are people, and then when you say, where was God? How about the story with the ravens? If God feeds the ravens and so on, then why do people die of hunger and starvation here and there? Wait a second. There is karma. Those people who die of hunger, there is a 
huge karma involved there. Can you imagine that not 30,000, 3,000, 3,000 people died today, today, of hunger, most of them children. Can you imagine that? Like, what karma do you have in the We're not talking about one person. We're talking about 300,000 people who died since the beginning of this year. Corona 45, hunger 300. And it continues. Corona will stop, but the hunger will not stop. It will happen in September and October as well. No? So, this continues. And theoretically, we could say, come on, man, a huge effort from Japan, America, the European Union, and this, and really, you could provide food for 3,000 or 30,000 people per, for free. No, like, organize a fucking institution which goes and puts free soups for 30,000 people every day. Is it so much to ask for from the wealth of the world? No. It could be organized and still it does not get organized. There are small bits and pieces. If all these Mother Teresa and Oxfam and whatever wouldn't be there, then maybe there would be 40,000 per day. So there is some relief, but it's not complete. So in the moment when we cannot stop the flu, and in the moment when we cannot stop the cancer, and in the moment when we cannot stop the starvation, it means that starvation is the result of some karma. And even United Nations cannot fight with karma because it doesn't have the spiritual power to compensate for karma. Exactly as the doctors cannot stop the world from dying from corona. They can only flatten the curve in the meaning that it will last six months instead of two months, and then the hospitals won't be overwhelmed with cases. That's what they try to do, to slow down the rate so that they have coffins for everybody who dies. And it's not happening all in a short period of time, and it becomes grotesque through it. And thus, if we cannot stop that, Jesus says, but Jesus wants to give faith to people. I ignore, let's say it's true in our little circle here. Don't worry, God will feed you. For the people who are conscious and who surrender and who make a deal with God, yes, because it becomes an act of faith and you are asking God to interfere. You make a consecration. But if you just live your life in animalistic unconsciousness, as I said, it will not happen. And sometimes animals and birds and this, they also die. Even ravens die. There are animals who have died because of starvation in some phases. And there are species of animals who die. So that's why the deeper rabbit hole here is that there is a karma to this. There is a karma which we don't even understand. Very few clairvoyants on this planet have had the boldness of the spirit to say, what the fuck is happening? 3,000 people are dying every day. Why? 
Like Gurdjieff said, people are dying because of traffic accidents. Why? And he said, the traffic deaths are a blood sacrifice done to the demons of the automobile. We are sacrificing 0.01% of the people who use automobiles as blood sacrifice to the spirits, to the entities which are part of those automobiles. Otherwise, they will not function. The deal will not function. The same with airplanes. And, but nobody has bothered to say what kind of planetary karma is being fulfilled when 3,000 people or 30. I want to keep it to 3,000 because 30,000 is like boggling your mind. So let's be modest and say, oh, there must be some journalistic exaggeration. It's three. Okay. 3,000 is still horrendously much. Is the Twin Towers every day. And 3,000 people are dying every day. What karma is that? Is it because we kill the whales and the animals and eat them? Is it because we pollute the planet? Is it like those people are incarnation of some people once every 10 lifetimes when you have killed enough pigs and cows and this, then you go there and you die of starvation in one life to pay for that and then you are free of that karma and continue. Like, what's happening that from time to time some members of humanity have to be born in that hell? in that hell, because it's a hell. The Tibetans have seen it, and they called it hungry spirits, that they are hungry ghosts. Some of those hungry ghosts are human beings, like in the zombie movies, that you see some white creatures going like, uh, food, food, you know, they want to bite you and eat you. The body snatchers, the body whatever, all these horror Hollywood cheap movies from the 1950s and 60s, you know? It's like, why? Why is it? Why are there hungry ghosts? Why are there hungry spirits? Because in a certain way, we produce it. We produce so much horrible karma that that's why people like Milarepa and like Saint Mark of Ethiopia, they feel compassion. They feel that they are part or they have been part of this humanity. But at the same time, they just want to step out of it and they say, man, a planet which pretends to be politically correct and which has allowed 3,000 people, most of them children, to die today while they are making fuss about the coronavirus or about Roman Polanski being a pedophile rapist, you know, like sure, that can be the case. But how is that compared with the fact that 3,000 or 30,000 people have died today? Like, which one of those two should you focus first on? Which one of them is more urgent and more catastrophic, more horrendously big? No? That's why I'm telling you all these things, that here the example of Jesus is incorrect. It's a white lie. But it is made in the context that for those people at that time, it was functioning. Jesus says, forget about the objections of stupid Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati in 2020. That guy is just an engineer with a weird mind. 
Listen to me, Jesus, now in the year 30 or whenever this was happening. Look at the ravens. God feeds them. Somehow the ravens live their natural lives without sowing and having storerooms or barns. And you are more valuable than those birds. And then he says a great word, which is so true. This is the essence of what he says. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Like somebody was asking, are you not afraid of the coronavirus or something? If I worry, can I make my life one hour longer? Yeah, if you worry, you will not get infected with some danger. If I had to get infected, I would get infected in spite of my worry. I would get infected anyone. Worrying or not worrying. Because karma is active. Karma does exist. There is a poem from the Vedas, which I cannot give you in direct translation because I first read it in Romanian. A Romanian poet from a hundred years ago translated it from some Sanskrit collection into Romanian and therefore he adapted, he was a poet, so he didn't translate it verbatim, he translated it poetically. And now I'm trying to render it back to English and two, two translations or three translations probably kill a lot of the meanings of that text and I will not manage, but it's beautiful because this poem, these two verses, it said something like this, you drink poison and the gods save you. But when your time has come, you touch a flower and you die. That's the truth about that karma. And therefore, Jesus is right. He says, what use is there for you to fret? He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? In, in a, another saying, in another gospel, who says, who of you by worrying can add five centimeters to your stature, stature, you know, to your height? Like, there are things which, you know, can you change the color of your eyes? Can you change the, you know, what can you change, really? Of course, with yoga and with occult sciences, we know that we can do a lot of things. But one, this one were not available to the masses. These are esoteric sciences. And two, even with these ones, you cannot change beyond a certain level. No? Today, people absurdly try to change their gender because they have a confusion of gender inside their mind and a man doesn't feel good in the body of a man or a woman doesn't feel good in the body of a woman and psychologically they never realize it's because of their previous lives and the heritage which they have in their astral body and they try to change it. And of course they cut off their testicles, their dick, whatever, they put silicone boobs, they do whatever, you know, and it's like, so what have you changed? What have you changed with this? Like, of course, you can change some things with plastic surgery. And, but, like, what's the big deal? What, what, will, what beneficial thing will result from that? So Jesus is very wise. He says, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Oh, if I don't get infected with corona, I'm 85 years old, and I will die in September. If I got corona, I will die in March. 
even that, which sounds very scientific, like, okay, I can admit that, that's a fact, but even that is not in the hands of men to decide. If you died in March, it's because you had to die in March. If you died in September, it's because you had to die in September. Krishna reveals to Arjuna that the people who die between the autumn equinox and the spring equinox in the northern hemisphere, in the dark time of the year, their spirit is going into the lunar sphere, which means down. And the people who die when the sun is up from 21st of March to the 21st of September, between the spring equinox and the autumn equinox, they go up in the solar sphere, and that shows evolution of the spirit rising. So, Krishna indicates a fact from Svara Yoga, from the old astrology of India, where even the time of death is meaningful. So, believe me, it's not the same thing if you die in April or if you die in October. Because if you die in April, you are in the bright half, and if you die in October, you are already in the dark half. So that cannot happen. Oops! Oops! We sent this one to die in October and he had to die in the bright side. So what will happen now? Such confusions, such mix-ups, they do not happen. That's why Jesus is right in terms of the principle. As a matter of principle, you cannot add a minute to your life. Live like the birds of the sky. But that is because you are doing an intelligent and deliberate act of trust. <clears throat> you surrender. You consecrate. And then the ball is in the side of the ground of God. You throw the ball on the side of God and say, now the ball is on your side. Now, now it's your move. Because I have done my move. And my move was to live consciously. To live intelligently. If you want, I can die right now. But at least then it's your move. And when I die, I go to the kingdom of heaven, probably. Because it's your move. Otherwise, you know, like I surrender in this way. So, Jesus concludes by saying, since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? says you cannot add a single hour to your life. So why do you worry about the rest? Why worry? Why consume useless energy on something which you cannot change? See, this is the where materialism is coming. This is where the anti-religion is coming. Even now, in my country, I watch some images from television from there. People are objecting that if people meet in a church and they do a mass, they will get the coronavirus. So that the social gatherings... So the question is, if you get coronavirus, is this a will of God or not? Should you stay away from church? Or should you just surrender and say, I'm going to church, and if I get corona in the church from kissing the icons or whatever, then it was the will of God. The religious people in Romania, they do that. And the doctors and the politicians bit, and the journalists bitterly condemn them for doing that because they are not religious. 
they are materialistic. This is the borderline between materialism and religion. Jesus says, put your money where your mouth is. Or at least tell me, Jesus, go to hell, man. Uh, we are not interested to hear your mumbo-jumbo bubble. We don't believe in God. And we don't think that if you do this, God will save you. We don't think that there is such a force in the universe. We think that if you take the coronavirus, you die. And we think that if you live in Ethiopia or in Somalia, you hunger and you die. That's the truth. That's the truth of the materialists and scientists and politicians and journalists. And religious people live in a separate truth. And Jesus is talking from that standpoint. Yes, scientifically they can seem to be right. Because 3,000 people died of hunger today and God seems to have forgotten about those. Of course, God has not forgotten about those, but they represent a different case. They represent a different situation. Another, a human beings who belong to a different category. And Jesus is speaking to this category, which today we would call the believers. And Jesus says, when you are one of my believers, then listen, live like this, live and don't get so much hypnotized by this. He says, if you cannot add one hour to your life by worrying, then why do you worry about all the rest? And you know, like, what are you going to change with the worry? Live every day as it comes and do the right thing. You can say, hey, I don't know what's going to be tomorrow, but at least today I did my spiritual practice, my prayer, my meditation. I have done what I could do today. Maybe I haven't done enough. I was planning to do six hours and I do just I did just two hours. I'm weak. I'm inconsistent with myself. I'm absent-minded. I get easily distracted. But even in these conditions, being such a weak creature, I have done my two hours and a half. I've done two hours and a half of something. What will be tomorrow? Maybe they throw an atomic bomb on Pangan and everybody dies, you know. What should I know? Well, maybe Kopangan is on the Russian missile list. It's one of the... They have anyhow 30,000 rockets and they don't know where to throw them all. You know? So it's like maybe one of them will, is pointed at Kopangan and it will come tomorrow. Can you change something about that? Can you extend your life with one hour? You cannot. That's why Jesus says, surrender and do your spiritual thing. That's what matters. That's the priority of your life. For the rest, leave the worry to God. Put the ball in the side of God and see if God lets you down. The problem with the people who have died today in Sahel is that they did not put the ball probably. I cannot afford to judge them. I'm not saying it as a judgment. I'm saying it as a feeble attempt to understand with my poor mind a mystery which is cosmic, a mystery which is karmic and planetary. How does this planet take it that 3,000 or 30,000 people still die every day in a time of luxury and supersonic jets and 5G 
internet and all that. It's like, how does it happen? And it happens. Look, it happens. Go on Worldometer and see it with your own eyes. It happens today as it happened tomorrow. So, this is the radical view of Jesus. Be consciously involved. Consecrate. Surrender. And then you are having a living relationship with God and His Holy Spirit. And remember, you fool, what if your life is asked from you tonight? He will insist on that further, but that will be for another satsang. Thank you all for joining tonight. And with this we have.